Welcome back to Doing Theology, Thinking Mission. This is Jackson. This is Carrie. And today we have a special guest and friend, Jamie Sanchez. She is a friend from China that both Carrie and I know from our time in China. She is the chair of the Graduate Department of Intercultural Studies and the program director for the PhD Intercultural Studies, as well as associate professor of intercultural studies. So this lady knows a lot about uh, missions, and uh, she is going to share some of that insight with us today. Welcome to the episode, Jamie. Hi, it's good to see you both. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. You have uh, so many fascinating things that you've worked on, and we want to share that with other people. So would you just introduce yourself for people who may not be familiar with you and your work? Sure, yeah. I mean, as you said, I'm currently at Biola University. I just finished up my fifth academic year, which is hard to believe. I'm originally from New Mexico, though, uh, in the Four Corners area. Spent a lot of time there and in Hawaii going back and forth. Went to New Mexico State University as an undergrad. Ended up overseas for a bit of time. Did graduate work in Northern California, back overseas. And then ended up in Virginia, believe it or not, for my PhD. And once I finished there, I started here at Biola. About how long were you overseas? About 10 years. I, I started going overseas in 97, but I moved there permanently in 2001. Some back and forth for education, returned back to the States in 2012. You were primarily in, in, in East Asia the whole time, right? Like you didn't yeah. go. In... Same place. Yeah. Great. And what kind of work did you do over there? Let, our, let our listeners know that. I, I have to remember that I have to ask questions that other people don't know the answers to. <laughs> yeah, you know, so I served with a mission sending organization, but as is common in most, in a lot of different places, there's other things that you do as well. So starting off as a language student, which was very helpful, worked at, uh, I studied language with other foreigners, other expats in um, a university. And then my colleague and I started an English language school, which we ran for a number of years, along with this kind of consulting firm that we did a little bit. I didn't have a lot to do with that side of things, except for the administrative part of it. Yeah, so we were busy. Well, Carrie, you had some questions that you uh, wanted to ask. Yeah, so, okay, so Jamie, I know you and I have talked a little bit about the role of women and then I think there's a twofold thing that you can kind of talk about is women's role that we're tasked with overseas but also as a single woman that that might have even looked different when I was overseas you know I was married and I was a mom and so there are things that we are tasked to do right this is our job and then there's all of the intangibles that we end up doing when we're overseas so I wanted to ask you, when you collaborated, you talked about, you know, you have a colleague, you started this English training um, center with, what did collaboration with coworkers look like as a female in the field, as a single in the field, as an overseas worker? I had such a fantastic team experience, largely due in part to my colleague, her name was Lisa. And um, so she kind of set the team culture for ourselves, mm -hmm. not just individually how to flourish in, in what can be very long and hard days, yeah. um, but collectively there were high expectations. And so we collaborated on everything. I mean, it was everything mm -hmm. from uh, language study together to kind of the business work of sides that, that we were business side of things that we were doing um, and ministry. And there wasn't really any barriers to collaboration. Like I, I, I worked with married couples, married women, married men on different projects. We did our team stuff together. We also did our ministry work together. It was just very convivial, as they say, synergistic in some ways in the, in the work that we were able to do. And that really was the ethos that carried the entire time that I was there. Yeah. Yeah. And did you find that, you know, you talked about Lisa and what a great job she did in leading out your team. Did you feel like in general, that was a unique experience that your colleagues, maybe in different cities or doing different things, experienced something different when it came to collaborative work? Yeah, you know, I, I remember we would get together for these annual meetings. And the first annual meeting I went to was only a few months after I had, had been on the field. So I didn't know a, a lot, but I started 
pick up, huh? Some people are having really good teaming experiences and some people are not. Mm-hmm. Um, but by the second meeting, it it was clear that we were tasked and given more responsibility. And she would say, raise the bar and watch people meet it. That was something that she said often. We were given equal responsibility and tasks to do, mm-hmm. um, not based on how long we were we were there necessarily. For example, Sometimes those who were there for just a two-year term, kind of a shorter amount of time, were tasked with some of the smaller things. And yet, for those of us coming out for one year or two years, obviously there are limitations based on language, but there wasn't, she didn't say, okay, well, we're not going to get anything out of you. She was going to train people up because there was also this perspective that maybe they would stay longer, which is Mm what's my case, or maybe they would go somewhere else and continue the work. So I did notice that there was some different ways of teaming and team leading across across the country, at least. Yeah. Hmm. Now, you were with an organization that's uh, conservative, evangelical, complementarian uh, in orientation. But yet I, I knew when we first came to East Asia, we actually heard about your team and how smoothly things ran how much people loved being on a team and yet it was you know had women leadership and single women leadership at that so how was how was it that you guys were able to navigate such a flourishing team situation in an organization that tends to emphasize couples married couples and tend to emphasize male leadership uh, how did you were you able to work that out You know, when I first got to the field, I wasn't kind of aware of the full context of different conversations going on. So it, you know, it came over time that it dawned on me that, oh, yeah, there are some differences in in what people are able to do, sometimes based on whether they're married, sometimes based on whether they're they're a long time or even whether they're, they're a man or a woman. It wasn't my experience because, and I'm guessing here, but she, Lisa was a fantastic leader and had the trust of the leadership. And I think leadership at that time, different people trusted her and, and mm-hmm. saw what she was able to do and believed in her. Now, there may be some other reasons, right? We were there kind of doing, I hate to use the word pioneer work. Uh, it was early work for our organization at that time. That's not to, to dismiss the hundreds of years of people who have been doing work in that area, um, particularly from Europe. But for us, it was our organization was kind of new. Mm-hmm. So there may be some of that. There oftentimes you see people being able to do things new in the work, if mm-hmm. it's new, then later on in the work. So yeah, I, and she was just a savvy, excellent leader. I mean, it's hard to find, you won't find anybody who worked under her leadership or alongside her that didn't see her giftings. Mm-hmm. And so that was part of that too. So did you eventually find as you kind of, I don't say moved out of pioneering work, I get the tension of using that language, yeah, but yeah. <laughs> as there was more development in the organization, did you find that either being single or being a woman ended up being an obstacle or challenge to uh, your team's ability to work? You know, I my daily life was always what was going on in the organization and changes was always juxtaposed on what we were doing in our daily life. And so mm-hmm. in some ways I was sheltered by some of those conversations. And yet, I don't know if it's because the work was was changing where we were or because the organization was changing, or organization was changing in light of the work. I mean, I kind of lost track how many reorganizations there were <laughs> <laughs> at that time. So when so many things are constantly changing, you you kind of stick with what you're doing, right? Things are always around. But we've had a taste of that this year, right? We can't yeah. really keep up with the constant changes. So we're doing what we need to be doing. Yeah. So that may may have been part of the case. Early on, I remember there being some autonomy to the team, you know, like team leaders were sent out to do what they were sent to do. There was training periodically once a year or different times for team leaders. But by and large, there was some autonomy for the person to go to the field, know the context and the goal and and work towards it. The model might have changed over time, right? So there were some decisions being made from the states for a field you know, a site where some of those people hadn't even been to. And so some of those impacts felt like there were different 
limitations to what we were probably going to be able to do. And honestly, by the time I had, I had reached the end of my time there, and there was a number of reasons why I decided to go back to the States. But it dawned on me, I was like, oh my gosh, I think I'm at the kind of limit of what I'm going to be able to do leadership wise. I don't think mm. there's anything past me. Now, I'm not generally like career orient- oriented. I don't have a timeline. I don't, I didn't grow up thinking I'd become a professor, right? I kind of take it step at a time. But it did dawn on me. I was like, this is it. So do I want to do this for the remainder of my life or career? And that might have been okay. There's nothing wrong with that at all. In fact, I greatly admire people who are able to do those things. But the other question is, how am I going to steward best my giftings in a way that's effective for the kingdom, even if it means changing context? I was in you know, the mainland part of China for all of my overseas ministry life. And, you know, regardless of what people think about women leading churches, women were leading most of the churches. So I guess my question is twofold. One, was that your experience where you were at? And two is, how did that impact your work and relationship with your local brothers and sisters? being? single female, you know, helping to train up churches and pastors and things. Yeah. Yeah. That was our, that was our situation. I mean, some of the main leaders in our area were women. There were also men, but a lot were women. And the way that we really engaged in that kind of work when we were starting to either try to plant churches or disciple groups of people to become a church or train house church leaders is we generally paired up. So I Mm. remember working with um, one of my colleagues, he and I knew each other when we were at graduate school and he ended up joining our team and we paired up for the work that we were doing with a mixed group of people, but there were both men and women leaders in Mm. that. Now that wasn't always the case for logistic reasons and different things that kind of go into monitoring what needs to happen, what's best for the people that you're training. So sometimes maybe Lisa would just go off or another colleague would just go off kind of one person doing those trainings, but by and large, we tried to collaborate in that ways to meet the needs of the different groups. Yeah. Yeah, one of the, I remember talking to a former colleague and she was working in Japan at the time, single woman as well. And she would talk to me about this real tension that she felt because her task was to plant churches. Yeah, And so she would go into a community and they would begin with Bible studies and it would turn into a church, but then all of a sudden she's leading this group of people. And so then there was kind of push back from the organization should you be leading but then what happened is it left her very frustrated because she felt like well this is my job but then at some point it becomes not my job and so there was a lot of gray so how do you feel like you guys maybe as a team navigated that gray space within the organization if there was ever times when when organizational leaders were saying you need to stop doing that i didn't hear about it so maybe it was just at that the period of time where we weren't having those conversations. And yet, I don't want to dismiss the struggles of people who had those experiences. Yeah. I remember one of my colleagues who was in a neighboring city came back to the States. Was She had her MDiv. She was a trained teacher. She was teaching a group of people that included young men, college group, and was told you can't do it anymore. And so mm-hmm. we had to have a conversation about where where can you flourish right? If this is what you feel like you're supposed to do, where can you flourish Mm. and do those things and find that space to do those things in? That's not always easy if you're in the, on the field, employed by a particular organization, and there's kind of mixed messages there, probably open conversations and then making some hard choices, right? Either stop doing the things that the organization doesn't want you to do, or find a place where you can do those things. And I think those kind of uh, decisions were made amongst our kind of colleagues, although I yeah. I can't, I don't know specifically. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, I came to a place where I finally had to go and not, not because of my experience in China, but just maturing going, you know, I, I'm responsible for my own giftings mm. and I don't want to be, I don't want to create problems by at all. Um, but yeah. I also want to be, be faithful to what I feel like um, the Lord has given me to do. Mm-hmm. And that might look different for different people. So, yeah. Yeah. Hey guys, I am the theologian in residence 
at a fantastic organization called Mission One, who sponsors this podcast. We partner with the global church in making communities more like the kingdom of God. Mission One partners with locally-led ministries and denominations on projects, training, and relief efforts in their own communities. From clean water and education, to church planning and discipleship, to theological training and contextualization, Mission One desires to see every community transformed for the glory of God and the honor of all peoples. If you want to learn more about our work at Mission One, visit us at missionone.org. A lot of your dissertation work that we'll get to in a moment talks about cultural identity and this wrestling between cultural identity, personal identity is, you know, it's, it seems like it's in every news story you hear every day. There's some, <laughs> some tie to that. And so we've talked a little bit about this, the personal identity as a woman, but as, as a single woman, did you feel like that gave you more opportunities or less opportunities within a traditional East Asian context when you worked with nationals? Did, did that, did they even care that you weren't married or was it, or how did that affect your ministry? I don't think, and maybe I'm naive, I don't think it had an impact from the perspective of national believers. Now, they cared whether you're married or not. I mean, they asked often. Often, I would imagine, yeah. Separately, there was these conversations, like, of very direct questions about whatever. But when it came time to learning or teaching or collaborating, it it didn't seem to limit me. And I wonder if I had more opportunities as a single person from the organizational perspective. I, I don't know, but I wondered if I was married with opportunities have gone to my husband and then there'd be that tension there as opposed mm-hmm. to I, this is who you hired, this is who you get. I don't have another person in my home to do the work that you've hired me to do. So mm-hmm. I will do it. I, I wonder if that's the case. I was reading a book recently I think by one of your colleagues, and she was talking about this dynamic between in an organiz- mission organizations, between single women and married women, and how oftentimes there can be a jealousy among the married women because the single women have all these opportunities. Did you ever see that <laughs> dynamic play out? No, but again, we were set up pretty well in that. So we, we had we had a number of different nationalities and then people from across the states, but we also had diversity in life stages, right? So we had younger, fresh from college, singles who were in their 30s, and then married, and then married with kids. And so on our team, we just all took responsible for responsibility for one another. The kids had homeschooling, but amongst us, different people were teaching different parts to then release the, the parents to do the different work that they needed to do. We also were divided into sub-teams or organized, I should say, into sub-teams because we had different areas that we were focusing on in our city. And generally married couples were on different sub-teams so that they could practice their own, whatever they were doing. It was, what are you passionate about? What do you wanna do? Okay, well, you're here, you're here based on your different kind of perspectives. Mm. Now, of course, married couples and families also responsible for their own family dynamics and whatever that looked like. And we would work with that. We didn't say, come here and do do it this way, right? People had their own traditions or times or certainly vacation times to connect all of that. But by and large, we were were together as a team in that to help. Mm. Um, And it, it was also, I mean, that wasn't divided by, by gender either. The, the men on the team babysat, the women on the team babysat. Mm. Um, and as a result, you see some of the, those kids had really strong mentors uh, of both genders. And we kind of, I mean, we were always told you're the aunts and uncles of these kids while they're here because they're away from family. And so mm. we got to step into some of those roles. So I don't know if it was intentional, but that usually took away some of the, the pro- or I, at least I didn't see any problems um, amongst married or single women. Uh, you know, everything you're saying is breathtaking to me because so much of your experience is not what I've seen firsthand in yeah. other teams. Uh, yeah. uh, sure as heck, men work on a babysit on many other teams I saw. And <laughs> and so oftentimes there was such a, 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 a chasm between the singles and the marrieds, you know, uh, it was just there was just that unity that not only have I heard rumored, but also I've heard you confirm, you know, yeah. so what 
you are a perfect person because when you listen to missions, talks, podcasts, whatever, you hear from white married men. That's 85% of the time. <laughs> that's where you're going to hear from. And so as a, uh, a single woman who served on the field, what do you think that the mission world should be doing a little different to help improve, uh, I don't know, opportunities or the situation for, for women or singles or however you want to answer the question? Yeah, I mean, there needs to be room at the table. There is room at the table. We just need to scoot over a little bit and let people sit at the table <laughs> to make some of these decisions, you know, and not just for for uh, women or single women. You know, I'm, a, I'm serving on a, a missions organization board of directors, and they've done a great job of different perspectives. But I did mention at the beginning, like, hey, it's great that there's women here, but what about the, I, and I know they're kind of, busy right now, but what about the women with kids in the home? They're going to have a different perspective Mm -hmm. on the needs of people than I am. I can speak to it and and I'm happy to do that, but we do need the kind of, we need all perspectives. (laughs) We do Mm. need women who, who have insight into the different needs of, of people going on because some of that stuff crosses national boundaries, right? Mm -hmm. Um, The, the kind of things that, single women think about might be the same across national boundaries, but certainly the things that, that married women with kids and fathers and all that. But that's a larger conversation of how do we kind of change the actors, those with voice in, in what we can call the Western's missions industry, not just include women, but our national partners or global Christians. Um, the things that people are doing worldwide are phenomenal. It's phenomenal work. And we should be collaborating with them in a way that doesn't just um, placate their position, but really thinks about, wow, how can we do things a little bit differently? I'm not talking about theology or changing any particular Mm -hmm. perspective that we adhere to, but uh, methods might be enhanced or changed or deconstructed Mm -hmm. in a ways that empower people to make much of Jesus in their contexts. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if uh, if you don't mind, let me pivot a, a bit because when you left the field, you decided to to get a PhD, um, and uh, and tell us more about that 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 decision to go do that because um, I mean that, some people might say, well, that's a big jump, and it's a and, huge jump. <laughs> so tell us a little about that transition and a little bit about your what you studied. I was looking to spend a year in the States, right? At this time I was on the field, all these things were kind of changing organizationally. Um, my team leader was transitioning to a new position, second career in the States, and a number of other things went into that. So I started thinking, you know, if I did end up back in the States, what could I do with my current education, right? I had master's degrees, one in an MDiv and one in intercultural studies. But within the church, there's going to be limitations to what I could do. I absolutely recognize that, that moving back to the States, I would not have as many paid opportunities to do the things that I felt I was gifted in. So I started looking at PhD programs, um, you know, and honestly, I was like, I'll just try, just try to do a PhD. Now I look back going, oh my gosh, no, it's all encompassing. You can't try it. It's going to suck every bit of your soul out of you. So you better be ready. It's so hard. Uh, and I got into a PhD program at Virginia Tech, and uh, it was I wanted a secular PhD program to set me up well for other opportunities, um, although I knew what I wanted to, to also kind of look into cultural kind of conversations. I got into this program and decided to move out there and do it. So bit by bit, um, as you're in a PhD program, you kind of take these classes. It informs a little bit about what you want to study, even though you may already have a bit of an idea. So what I ended up looking at, so the, my last bit of time in, on the field, there was these upright, uprisings where I lived amongst Mongols. There were protests, and we can get into that a little bit. But I remember looking at that, those situations going, this is different than we've seen in other parts. I know that this is different. I want to understand what's going on here a little bit better. So I looked, took that experience into my program and also realized, oh, but I probably can't fly back to China and interview people about why you protested. So what else could I do? <laughs> uh, and so I ended up looking at different case case studies of how Mongols are representing 
their cultural identity in an effort to resist the end of cultural identity, which was in some ways part of what was in those protests. Now it's a long standing history, right? Just about anything mm-hmm. in China is. So there's much more to that. But that's what I ended up doing my PhD on. So some of the themes are uh, China, China ethnopolitics, material culture, that kind of stuff. And I've done a little bit since then. I published out of the, the dissertation. Thank you for being two of three people who've read the dissertation. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it. it was fascinating. I loved it. I don't know if Go I sent ahead. you, I, I don't know if I sent you uh, my thoughts before him, but I have all kinds of quotes that I pulled out. I was like, oh, this is great. And this is great. I love that. <laughs> I had to go back and reread it. I was like, oh man, what did I say? (laughs) Um, So now to be clear for our listeners, when you say Mongols, you're not talking about the country of Mongolia, right? You're talking about Mongols in China. Right. That's right. Uh, All right. Because then people could easily get this confusion. Why are you talking about Mongolia now? You know? Yeah. All right. So yes, as I said, you talked about some uh, fascinating stuff in there. And the way I kind of, uh, the thesis of your of your dissertation, as I read it, and you can correct me, was that okay, uh, the Mongols were taking various uh, measures to preserve their cultural identity uh, amid various economic developments and urbanization and political policies that the Chinese government was taking. And you look at three different strategies that the Mongols take. How am I doing so far? Great. Perfect. <laughs> All right. Good. All right. It, 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 it can be a little nerve wracking to summarize someone else's work. Yeah, no, we, we find it helpful. <laughs> you know, let's just introduce three strategies because ultimately what we want to do is uh, for listeners is we want to think through how do some of the principles that you gained uh, and strategies that you saw help the church whether it be Chinese Christians or the church anywhere in preserving identity, cultural identity, or identity as a church, you know, there's some lessons to be learned here. So the first you talk about uh, pastoralism and economic development. Uh, How does economic development encroach on cultural identity? A lot of people say, Hey, this is great. Why would anybody object to that? Yeah. Well, and that's the tension. What I tried to do in my dissertation, it was raise a lot of questions, although I may not have answered a lot of the questions that I raised. Right. So yeah, economic development is good. Right. I mean, there's plumbing in some places throughout the the rural areas. Maybe there wasn't before, or there's high rise buildings. And of course there's impacts on culture. So those things aren't bad. And yet what are the impacts that are worth looking at, right? So take the high-rise building, for example, when people used to live in a courtyard and had developed relationships that were across the courtyard, now they're kind of isolated in one particular space. Does that change the way that people operate or don't operate? Or if you're all put into a city and you need language to function, that's not that's not wrong if you need the majority language to function, but then does that also mean that people have to make the choice to leave behind a language that uh, marks part of their culture. So those are that's the tension there. Pastoralism, yeah, I mean, Mongols have been pastoralists for a long time, a long, long time, right? Do Mongols always want to be pastoralists? Maybe not. And yet those that, that want to can't because the environmental impact on Inner Mongolia in light of urbanization, and there's no going back. Right. I mean, the cities are are everywhere and the grasslands are not. They don't exist anymore. And so there's a lot of different impacts on that, on uh, culture and on the environment. Mm. You talked about protest, but you do make a, a clear point that the protest that you saw among the Mongols was different than what you saw, say, in Tibet and Xinjiang, uh, where they were fighting political separation. Can you Kind of explain that a little bit more, uh, the distinction here between the the fight to preserve cultural identity in these different areas. I took the position that these were these were different things going on. It's not to say that in in Inner Mongolia there aren't separatists or whatever term wants uh, they, that the government has attached to them. Sure, that that exists. That exists in a lot of different places, but these particular protests 
were in light of a specific situation, right? That a Mongol shepherd had been struck and killed by a Han truck driver. That happens. And at the same time, it was kind of made light of the situation, right? And so now Mongols had a legitimate reason to be able to say, hey, this is what we're pushing up against. And so in the context yeah. of everything else going on, it wasn't just a, a car accident. It was a shepherd in the grasslands and there was a truck driver doing development. All of those kind of factors created a situation where for weeks, Mongols were allowed to protest. I mean, if they're a separatist movement, wow. I don't know that they would have been allowed to. And right. they started one other, this was in 2011, they started in one part of the province and kind of trickled their way down to our city by by May, they were in our city and they were allowed to protest. Now they were controlled, right? The square in the city was shut down. Uh, China doesn't want any protests happening on squares <laughs> ever again. Um, <laughs> and universities were closed. Mm -hmm. All of that kind of stuff happened, but there were still protests going on. So it was a, a kind of give and take. Yes, please express your frustration and grief, but in this way, right? Now that's not right or wrong. That's just kind of the way it is. I don't know if I was the leader of a nation, how I would handle uprisings. Sometimes controlling them is is one way to to uh, manage public safety mm -hmm. and image and all the other things that people are thinking of. Yeah, uh, as opposed to uh, Tibet and Xinjiang, I, you know, Xinjiang I feel like is a mix, <laughs> but Tibet certainly is because their their history is a little bit more recent of having their own kingdom, right? Kind of a separate mm -hmm. thing. Although again, it's really complicated, long history. That seems to be more of a separation type of thing. Maybe that's influenced by the West and all of the free Tibet stuff. The one of the things I was thinking as you're talking is, you know, here in the States, we talk a lot about, you know, being in the world and not of the world. And in a lot of places, we really set up the church and culture in opposition. And so why is it, you know, when you talk about the cultural identity that your Mongol brothers and sisters are trying to preserve, why is it that we as believers should encourage them to preserve a culture? Why not say, well, you know, just move on. Don't, you don't have to be shepherds anymore. You can, you know, you can be mechanics. You, you know. So what part of that do you feel like is more of a, a Christian issue that we can support them in? Yeah, I mean, I, I haven't thought about this too deeply, uh, but even taking the the notion of language. Now, not this is where it gets complicated. Not all cultures have to have the particular language to market, right? Somebody can be a particular culture and maybe not be fluent in their language because of circumstances. And just because somebody speaks a language doesn't make them that culture either. I speak Mandarin, and yet I don't think of myself as Chinese, right? Mm -hmm. But language and diversity. I mean, even the scriptures, if we look at Revelation, informs what we're going to see at the end of time. If all nations and people of language are going to surround the throne, then we should care about those people in living out their diversity mm -hmm. um, as they were as they were created. Some of it is just a kind of justice issue in some regards. Mm -hmm. That's not to say that that Christian identity isn't important. It certainly is. But again, this kind of binary thinking, right? Is it one or the other? How does a Mongol believer live out their Christian identity and Mongol identity together? Mm -hmm. That's a good question. I don't have the answer, but it's, it's worth thinking through. identity is a lot of symbolic actions or symbolic images or whatever else. And so oftentimes I think that missionaries from the West don't appreciate the value and the impact of symbols. Yeah. Uh, even though Westerners have their own symbols of identity right. and whatnot. And navigating those symbols can be really, really tricky. I think one of the most interesting case studies you did in the dissertation was concerned Genghis Khan who is a symbol of Mongol culture identity, yeah. the Chinese government, the Chinese state 
commodified Genghis Khan it's basically to help for tourism, right? And so then the question arises about whether or not Khan is a Mongol figure or a Chinese figure. And then you talked about praising Khan as a Mongol wasn't always a safe idea, but yet you go, why can't you praise him if he's being touted as a Chinese figure? Can you kind of unpack that? Because that was a fascinating aspect of your study. Yeah. And, you know, this happens in other parts of the world, too. If you look at Alexander the Great in Greece and Macedonia, right? There's division there on whose hero he is, Mm. right? So there's these claims to cultural heroes and how these people, in both cases, these men, can, from the 11th and 12th centuries for Genghis Khan, continue to mobilize people is fascinating Mm. to me. In some ways, they're also continually active. But in the case of Genghis Khan, some might say, in fact, a lot of my thoughts I got from Bulag. He's a Mongol scholar, Uridin Bulag. He informed my thinking a lot on this, at least academically. Some might say that the Chinese state kind of has expanded their history of existence, right? We're not, we're no longer looking at 1949 as the start date. That's the CCP. But the Chinese empire has existed the longest of most other nations. And so by doing that, then everyone who ever came up in that time is then Chinese, right? You just kind of change the discourse. And so Genghis Khan is then part of the Chinese state. Now, in in places like Inner Mongolia, ask anybody what they know about Mongols. And most of us who, if we are not familiar, will say we know, we know Genghis Khan. So of course he's mm-hmm. gonna be mobilized as a marker of who this culture is, right? Kind of a representation of the culture. But even in the last years that I was living there, suddenly there was a huge Genghis Khan statue and there's Genghis Khan Street and you have Genghis Khan School, right? I mean, there, it's everywhere. But there will be limits to the use of Genghis Khan for identity, but there'll be unit limits from the Chinese state on anything, right? You can mobilize mm-hmm. only so far. Mm-hmm. And certainly if it's going to benefit the state, with tourism or economy or whatever relations, there's all sorts of things that happen, then then they're going to allow it to happen. And this doesn't even get into the boundaries between outer Mongolia or the Republic of Mongolia and inner Mongolia, right? I mean, if Mongolia has has Genghis Khan, then Mm -hmm. what happens to the tourism of inner Mongolia? Right. Yeah, so so one of the specific examples you gave is you mentioned like people could praise Khan in this place, but if they praise them in that place, they get in trouble, which makes you scratch your head like, what? Why would it matter which place you praise the same guy? Yeah. It's like, I think I called that part proper patriotism or something like Mm. that. Yeah. It's it's all of this kind of context matters or places matter. I don't remember the exact example I gave in that part of the dissertation, but the, the idea that sure, of course they can have a huge I mean, it's a huge statue of Genghis Khan in the middle of the city. The cities are all wired for closed caption television. There's yeah. no problem with going those places, right? That gets a little bit into the um, political side of of living in China. But those are some of the questions that people wonder and ask. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned economic development. You looked at the use of Genghis Khan. And then you talked about language. And you talked about various use of songs to to preserve the Mongolian language. I can tell that you also looked at how cultural identity is preserved in various places or strived after, you know, uh, in your broader study. Do you see any common threads that made for effective strategies for peoples that try to preserve their culture against some more dominant force, cultural, political force? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. And, you know, all of these kinds of questions are situated in my larger context. I'm from New Mexico, which usually gets lost in between Arizona and Texas. Like, where is New Mexico? Where are you from? <laughs> part of the States, right? It's a minority type of perspective. I, I was raised half of my childhood in Hawaii. And um, in Hawaii, there is this, historically, the hula was wrong as, as deemed by this, by the church. It's now coming back as a kind of a cultural identity marker for the Hawaiian people, Hawaiian state. It's also used for tourism. And it's it's situated in these particular places where people can come and gaze and look and experience the Hawaiian culture. So all of that informed what I what I was looking at. So with with Mongols, 
yeah, I mean, I think that there is all of this kind of history of how do we keep this part of what, what we're doing, but it's also juxtaposed against the hopes and dreams. I mean, we can't just say to Mongols, you're Mongol, you have to stay ahistorical and live in the grasslands as Genghis Khan did in the 12th century. Mm-hmm. People have um, have the rights to do whatever it is they want to do. And so that's the broader theme of agency and self-determination and uh, preservation or advancement or whatever it is that a group or different groups want to do. And, and that's the danger of intercultural work, right? Making these broad mm-hmm. kind of strokes going, all people are this way. Well, they're not because amongst any particular group of people, sure, there may be some broad strokes, certainly, but different people can choose for themselves what it is that their opportunities have led them to do or their passions or on and on and on. Yeah, I love what you're saying there too, because I think we were in Australia for a conference and someone there said, you know, we have specific books and conferences, conference sessions that teach us as Australians how to work with American missionaries. Wow. Because we come in with so much self-assertion and a lot of these kind of cultural identity markers that we assume this is the way and everyone else does it differently. They're kind of offshoots of, of what we do. I mean, Americans mm. assume they're the boss when they walk in the room and they're yep. super optimistic. We can do anything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we can do it. And so, but what I, what you're saying here, Jamie, I think is such a, an important question to ask ourselves as we're working in any sort of intercultural situation is is this an American cultural identity marker or is this a Christian cultural identity marker? And don't you think if we could kind of pour situations through a sieve, I guess, and it would it would really help us, I think, approach ministry more humbly and we would be asking a million questions of our brothers and sisters in places like Inner Mongolia, like you're saying, is that you you know, you had to absorb the experiences of these people that you're around so that you could discern this is a cultural identity marker that they are holding so dearly. How do we get the gospel to them in a way that is approachable and it makes sense? And so, yeah, I just appreciate the way that you're helping us kind of think through those categories. I remember it was early on in my experience, I was kind of discipling Bible study thing with a new Mongol believer college student. And so we were going over the feeding of 5,000, right? In my head, I have all these kind of things that are important to know from this passage, right? Jesus is a miracle worker, meets all of our needs. All the resources are in the harvest. There's a breaking of sacrifice. All these things I know, this is what we're gonna talk about. So read it and I'm like, well, what stands out to you in this passage? And she's like, well, at the end here, it says, Jesus gathered everything up, let nothing be wasted. And for her, that passage was more about stewardship of what we have been given and not wasting Mm. things. Wow. Yeah. And I didn't correct Mm. her. I was like, hey, these are things I can learn, right? And she she cited some banquets that she had been to and how things had been piled up and food is wasting and how it was hurtful for her because she comes from a place where Mm. she didn't have a lot. And so this passage spoke to her that Jesus cares about not wasting and Jesus Mm. wants to provide and and we're responsible for that. And that's just a small example of a new kind of insight um, that was radically different than I had seen. And it wasn't wrong. And and the insights that we have were wrong either, right. But Mm. that we can collaborate together. Mm. Um, I I think one of the things that we do, we, the broad Western church maybe is definitely look for different perspectives, but then train them in the perspective that we need people to have, mm. right? Right. I mean, I think that can be done in education. Like, okay, well, here, what do you think? Well, I need to help kind of guide that a little bit based on academic literature or common theories or whatever. And yet there's gotta be the space of teaching people how to think and use the tools that we can give them. So in this case, missiological tools, scripture, theology, to then flourish in their context, not just what to think. And so this example with this young college student asking questions, let me hear from you what you think, mm. what insight yeah. do you have? And then and then working within that context. 
Yeah, that's good. Yeah, you brought theology. You know, this is the doing theology thinking mission, you know, uh, podcast. So one of the things we want to look at is where this intersection of missions and theology come together and help there be more integration because these fields tend not to talk to each other. So I'm going to turn up the difficulty level on some of these questions because we were talking to you yesterday. <laughs> You've been really comfortable. So now I'm going to ask you a few impossible questions. Okay. But <laughs> I'm not, I'm not looking for you to give this like, here's the total answer. Great. I'm, at least help us to think through your thought process on, on a couple of these things. We're going to do some cultural analysis and we're going to look at two questions. Okay that nobody has the answers to precisely, but you know, maybe we can move the ball down the field a little bit. One is I want to look at how can I'll use China as a, because that's a, a mutual context here. How yeah. can Chinese Christians maintain their distinct Chinese culture identity when they begin to follow Christ? So that's one aspect. Okay. Yeah. Now this could be, this question can be applied elsewhere, but this will be our case study Two, How could how can the Chinese church preserve their distinct holy identity as God's people amidst the encroachment of the Chinese government in Sinonization, you know, trying to make them more so communist, socialist friendly, whatnot. Now, as I said, those are huge questions. So let's just, let's just break it up one at a time. So let's do the first one. Okay. About maintaining Chinese culture identity. Can you, you, know, you, in, you again, we talked about pastoralism, use of Genghis Khan, language. Can you speculate, give some ideas on what you think might be similar key areas that Chinese Christians might, uh, ways they might seek to maintain their sense of identity, not forsaking Chinese culture and becoming Western when they become uh, Christians or follow Christ? No. Just kidding. <laughs> if, it was, if it's an impossible question, I thought well, that was inappropriate. Yeah, and next question. <laughs> it, it, it is big, and, and hopefully I was clear enough for listeners as well. Yeah, you were. Okay. Yeah, you were. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's the the question. And, you know, your complicated questions, unfortunately, elicit from within me complicated answers. Because yeah. you have these... You have, okay, so what do we mean by Chinese? Chinese? Are we talking about just Han or ethnic minorities, right? And what is the benefit of having some sort of diverse diversity in that? And we wrestled with that, trying to develop multicultural churches within, our, within the city that we lived in. Certainly wanted to have unity amongst believers, but sometimes multicultural churches didn't always work because then somebody had to give up their language preference. Right. Or Mongols spoke Mandarin, which they don't mind. And at the same time, it might, um, you know, there's a lot of history between Mongols and, and the mm-hmm. Han. And so for some, it might be painful, right? Some of those things going on. Um, and even in my own church here, um, I'm a part of a church that has three different language group congregations. And so we meet together. Currently, we're meeting together for one beginning part as one church in the beginning to sing, to worship in different languages, right? So we all sing our own mother tongue and then the different languages across the congregation are represented. It's really, really fun. I like Mm -hmm. it. But when it comes time to the sermon, then we all divide up into our language groups, right? So that there's some comfort level, understanding, that kind of stuff. So I, you know, I don't know. I don't know the answer, the answer to that. I do know that a lot of, especially as the, the work advances, we're bringing in things that, we've been doing for a long time in the missions world. I mean, the missions kind of structure and industry has, hasn't shifted a whole lot. I mean, there's been some, some blips on the screen of development of different things, right? Of work, um, tent making or, or platforms or all those different kinds of words that people use and wrestle with amongst themselves. So how do we go in and um, have a church developed that's their own identity. It seems like the onus is on us, not on the Chinese church, right? To lay down ourselves a little bit, mm. with some cultural humility in order to train people up to, again, do the things that we think there's some non-negotiables on our part, right? Most of that's going to probably be theological tenets that we adhere to. And that's right. That's, that's good to do. But how do we let go of some of those other things and trust that not only are these people 
they have access to the same Holy Spirit that we have access to, but that he's also amongst us working and developing the different marks of a church that may need to look a little different for, well, I, I don't know that there needs to be a utilitarian reason for it to look different. It just looks mm-hmm. different because it's different people. Mm-hmm. So that's my feedback on the first first question. I, again, it's, it is, it's a complicated question, but it's something worth wrestling through and worth working towards. You know, there's two aspects of culture identity here. There's the being Chinese while being a Christ follower, but then there's the other aspect of being Christian in the face of government resistance saying or mm. implying that, hey, if you are a Christian, then you're no longer Chinese. Yeah. And and the term that's been used uh, in the last few years a lot has been sinonization. Could you explain to the listeners what sinonization is? Because this is a term that keeps coming up a lot. You talk about your dissertation, but it would help with that second question. Yeah, sinonization is basically making things have Chinese characteristics, um, right? Adapting whatever the thing is to then be more Chinese in its characteristics. And in the case of Christians, and again, in China, it's not just it's not just Christianity or Christians being impacted, right? It's all religions that are being mm-hmm. sinicized, as it were. And the most recently government is trying to, or successfully doing, I'm not quite sure where they are on it yet, sinicize in some way the religions that are across the country. You talk about the denotation of sinus, but there's a connotation to sinonization uh, that's a little different than say, somebody could say, you just described contextualization, helping mm. them become Chinese. So I see. how would you distinguish sinonization the way it's being used versus say just contextualization yeah so a lot of this stuff has happened since i left china i was reading a bit on it in preparation for this it seems like there's some kind of restructuring the things that the different agencies that we worked with religious affairs bureau chinese council of christians those kinds of things have kind of been put under one particular group i don't remember the the name right now one particular agency and the, that agency is more of a direct line to the Chinese, the party, as it were, not the, not the state necessarily, the party having a little bit more control. But details of how that looks, I'm not sure. I mean, I, I know that I've read a little bit about, uh, about the Bible and it being changed, but I, I don't know it off the top of my head. Is that what you're talking yeah, about? Yeah, I would, um, I would perhaps add the aspect that it's not just Chinese, but socialistic. Yeah, uh, the socialism mm-hmm. component, the political components, uh, because th- that's part of what's being defined as Chinese is mm-hmm. that you're socialist as opposed right. to right. Chinese culture before there was a socialism, you know. Yeah. So let me before we go into our closing segment, I'll just ask I'll kind of rephrase that second question to just say, given your background and studying what we've said. Might there be any principles or suggestions about how say Chinese Christians could that could adopt as a subtle form of resistance against this this more negative form of sinonization? I think what's going to happen is what happened the last time the government tried to shut down the Chinese church and culture revolution. I think there's going to be some resistance. People are going to pull away and they're still going to do what they feel like they need to do, mm-hmm. which is be a church and um, kind of I don't know how how Chinese believers are able to do this, but they are able to navigate the complicated, nuanced relationship, right, and honoring the state and and those things, but not doing anything against what they really see as mandate, either in scripture or, you know, other places, mostly from scripture, about what it means to be a church in any context, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And so I anticipate that churches will continue and I don't know if this, how long this particular season of leadership is going to last. I don't know that anybody does know. But at the end of it, if there's another wave, and historically there's always there's always mm-hmm. waves. Uh, my guess is that it will flourish. The church will flourish. It 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 just will yeah. be hard, but it will flourish. It would be interesting to look look back after that time. Is what symbols do they hold on to? You know that they yeah. preserve to say, okay, this this is uh, preserves our Christian identity versus this is our Chinese identity, and what you know, things symbolically represent each one of those. Yeah. So let's uh, wrap up. You've been very generous with your time this morning and I'm I'm thankful. One of the things we want to ask anyone who comes on the show, 
this interaction between missions and theology. And, and I'll ask it broad. What should missions be learning from theology? And then I'm going to ask you, what should theologians be learning from missiologists? You know, Yeah. Well, certainly missiological practices and my work as a, a Christian scholar needs theology to inform what I do. Um, there's some theological tenets, theological practices. It, here at Biola, we talk about faith integration. So it's not just saying, okay, we're going to look at this particular principle, right? The kind of research we do is different than maybe a theologian would do. But look at this principle um, and then make it, weave it in through what we're talking about. For example, flourishing, human flourishing. How does life and each life really matter? How does how is that represented in the research that we're doing? Hmm. So when I'm talking about Mongols and um, perhaps some of the oppression they're thinking or feeling or going through, how can they flourish and demonstrate their own agency as creations of God, bearing the image of God, and do that in a way that that honors not only themselves but is also theologically rooted, right? Mm-hmm. So there's, there's some those are some of the things that I think through. It's funny, but because I have an MDiv, but I don't consider myself a trained theologian. I don't, my PhD wasn't in theology. And my PhD is more kind of intercultural. So I don't have a missions PhD as well. So I'm talking about these kind of two areas mm-hmm. that I dive into, but I, I don't have academic training in at least. This chasm that often happens in academic reading and also in, just in practice between missions literature and theological literature, where have you seen something of an outsider to both, as you kind of mentioned, um, yeah. where, where do you see the biggest disconnect in, in the current state of things? You know, I don't know. I don't know that I necessarily see a disconnect. I certainly see from the missiological perspective, some of the questions that we're asking here in the Cook School is where is missions going, right? And where do we need to keep it pushing it towards? Mm. For example, um, how do we continue to engage in some helpful conversations with global Christians, right? How do we allow those practices, what's actually happening where they live, inform the research that ne- that needs to be done in a way that continues to keep the focus of missio- missiology at the forefront in some ways. So it's never saying, okay, well, we no longer do this type of thing, or we no longer have this value. We value being able to live and work in diverse contexts for the sake of people knowing Jesus, right? That's the value. But how we do it might look a little differently as things, things kind of develop. And so between theology and missiology, I'm also wondering what else we need to be leaning into. There's the chasm. What other disciplines, yeah. right, can we learn from? Here in the Cook School, we have um, anthropologists and sociologists and mm-hmm. those uh, even, you know, as you mentioned, my colleague, Leanne Dubinsky, uh, partnering with a historian to be able to tell some of those stories of women doing missions in the church, but needed the history part of that to make, to link those stories together. On a more personal note, what kind of things are you working on these days? And when I came here, I kind of changed my research focus a little bit. I wanted to change it when I was a student, but I knew if I changed it, I wouldn't finish in time. <laughs> timeline. So I started working on refugee studies. Mm. I have a few publications out. I'm trying to get a grant to continue looking at, I want to look at women, refugees, and where they're developing resilience to continue in kind of these terrible situations Mm. that they find themselves in. Mm. Uh, Working with some other colleagues, my work was paused because of COVID, as everything was paused because of COVID. Mm -hmm but really want to know more from refugees. I want the refugee voices, not just about refugees. So mm-hmm. that's yeah. what I'm working on. Yeah, gotcha. That's great. Uh, any, any books you've been reading or things you may want yeah. to let people know about? I mentioned women in Mission of the Church, Leanne Dubinsky, my colleague, and she worked with another of her colleagues at another institution, Annika Stassen. It's worth reading, tell some stories that are worth knowing and mm-hmm. positions or ask some good questions that we need to ask. I'm, I just finished No Refuge. She's a philosopher. Serena. Austin. Perek. Perek, okay. Yeah, No Refuge by Serena Perek. And she asks just some good questions about the moral, the morality behind caring for refugees. One mm. of the questions, moral obligations or why we should help people even if we don't like them. That's a good mm. question. That is oh. a good question. Yeah. Wow. 
Very timely. And then Invisible China by uh, Scott Rosell and Natalie Hell, How the Urban Rural Divide Threatens China's Rule. So I am still interested in urbanization and yeah. its impact on Chinese society. All these are kind of academic books. On the side, I read things like Little House on the Prairie. <laughs> it's your <laughs> deep me. breath. Yeah. Well, yes. I'll, I'll yeah. put those books in the show notes. Maybe not Little House on the Prairie. Uh, I, I probably, yeah, probably... yeah, put these three. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We are grateful. You have shared so much wisdom from your experience and really yes. think through some things. So I'm really appreciative. Yes, thank you. It's always good to connect with you um, both. I appreciate the work that you've been doing since coming back to the States. You, uh, I don't know, probably licked some of your wounds on missing China and then dove right into a new things that you're doing, which is the best way to handle that. Yeah. I've been there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yep. Well, thanks again, Jamie. You're welcome. All right, everyone. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Doing Theology, Thinking Mission. 